You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, everybody, and you're all very welcome. Uh, my name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub. And this building, the hub, is Trinity's Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, and uh, I think since the day I took over, almost what, four years ago now, as director of the hub, the subject of democracy has probably been the most pressing topic that my colleagues and I have, have tried to work on in that period. So I'm very pleased that today's panel is turning to that topic, among other things. Uh, the panel discussion that we're going to be co-hosting together with the Global Office in Trinity um, has the honour uh, of welcoming our colleagues from Boston College with whom Trinity, as many of you know, shares a very warm and a very rich and a very long history of engagement and partnership. So it's very much like welcoming family to the Hub, and I'm delighted to see our Boston friends here. Uh, Boston College has uh, started to lead an international consortium on global ethics and social trust, and you're going to be hearing a little bit more about that uh, this afternoon. And it's under this remit that they have established a working group on democracy, governance, and education. Uh, and one of the university partners in this group is Trinity College, hence we are here today. Uh, as you can imagine, the purpose of this working group is to confront head-on the seeming collapse of confidence in institutions of democracy, uh, and to ask how can education, and particularly institutes of higher education take on the roles and the responsibility of rebuilding social trust. It is, of course, a very urgent question. Uh, I think it's about 170 years ago now that John Henry Newman wrote his idea of a university. Uh, and in that, he wrote that the end or the purpose of a university education was to give people, and I quote, a clear, conscious view of their own opinions and judgments a truth in developing them, an eloquence in expressing them, and a force in urging them. So in 2023, how do we apply that purpose, that force, to a current landscape, not only an international landscape of crisis, but a sense of crisis right here in Dublin, where our democratic order came under violent assault in the riots that took place just a few weeks ago on the 23rd of November. So to address democracy, governance and education today, I'm very pleased to introduce our speakers and all of them have expertise to comment uh, with some authority on this difficult topic. Uh, so in the order they're going to talk to you, uh, first of all I'm very pleased to welcome Jim Keenan, who is a theologian, uh, Canisius Professor of Theology at Boston College and recently has been made Vice President at Boston College for Global Engagement. His many books include a study of university ethics, and his works more widely connect theology to questions of race, poverty, health, and community. And, and Jim has uh, been very much the driving force between, behind setting up today's discussion, so I'd like to, to thank him for that. Second, we'll be hearing from Jonathan Lawrence, and Jonathan chairs the uh, Democracy, Governance, and Education Working Group. He's Professor of Political Science at Boston College, and he's Director of the Clow Center for the Study of Constitutional Democracy. Jonathan is also the author of many books, including 
recently Coping with Defeat, Sunni Islam, Roman Catholicism and the Modern State, which was published in 2021. Third, my distinguished colleague Linda Hogan joins us, and Linda is Chair of Ecumenics in the School of Religion at Trinity. She is the former Vice Provost of Trinity, among many other roles, including uh, serving on the board of the Trinity Long Room Hub. And she is an internationally renowned scholar in ethics, human rights, and religion. And she's written and published widely across these interconnected fields. She's the author of the landmark book from 2015, Keeping Faith with Human Rights. And finally, we'll be hearing from Elspeth Payne. Ellie Payne is a historian here at Trinity and a research fellow of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, she is an expert on democracy in crisis. She has led the Trinity Long Room Hub-based Democracy Forum for the past two years. And this forum has tried to advance discussions on how we address uh, the crisis of democracy and how we think our way towards a democratic future. So together with the, the journalist and the Trinity Long Room Hub's media fellow, Mark Lipple, she has produced the podcast series, A History of the Future, which I recommend to all of you. And she's currently working with the School of Education as co-PI on the European Research Council-funded project, Critical Change Lab, which is a consortium to research the role of creativity in youth-led democratic education. So those are our speakers. They're all going to talk for about 12 to 15 minutes, I think, Jim. Um, and uh, I'll not interfere in that process. And then when they've finished, we'd like to open the floor to all of you for questions and responses and comments and, and a bit of discussion on what you've heard. Uh, so with that, Jim, I'll invite you to come and talk first. Thank you, Eve, and thank you, uh, interview, for being here. Um, I'm really delighted we did convincing Jonathan to fly over for this panel. I'm delighted that he came. Uh, Elspeth, I'm delighted that you're participating, and Linda is on the working group, so we recruited her for quite a while. Over the past four years, I have been developing a pilot project at Boston College that was funded only a year ago for a center for Global Ethics and Social Trust. This pilot is for two years. It started three months ago in September as we launched two international working groups to address each an ethical issue of our time. One is on the role of education in the face of threat to democracy and good governance, and the other is climate change and migration. Each working group is led by a chair from Boston College with eight other members on the working group. Those eight are four faculty from Boston College and four from any of the 15 universities with which Boston College has established a significant partnership through a memo of understanding. In total, there, then, we have 10 BC faculty and eight other faculty from these 15 partnering universities. Professor Linda Hogan, for instance, is the faculty member from Trinity, University, Trinity College and participates in the first working group which Professor Lawrence chairs. Each working group meets virtually every month with three meetings each semester over the course of two years. 
Additionally, at the end of the first year, all 18 faculty will meet for four days in person at Boston College in June of 2024, and then again in June of 2025. Each working group needs to not only address the critical ethical issues before them, but also to determine how they want to share their findings. Let me finally add that the groups are interdisciplinary and global. I chose these two issues on the role of education at a time of threat to democracy and the challenge of climate change migration precisely to highlight that universities can only address the most compelling issues of our time if they work across disciplines and across the globe. No singular university can pretend to respond to these, and no singular department can either. I also raise up that not only must we see these urgent issues as ethical ones, but that the interest of social trust needs also to be engaged as well. In fact, just last year, as the president of the Society of Christian Ethics, I addressed the topic of social trust and the ethics of our institutions, in particular, the university. At the meeting, I, was inv I invited our guild members to consider how ethical our universities actually are. That's a big question that I constantly pose. And whether they act in a way that promotes not only ethics, but social trust. Are they models of ethical conduct so as to instill or restore social trust? Ten years ago, I began writing on university ethics, not just about patenting or contracts or academic freedom, but also about matters of gender, accountability, student formation, race issues, issues of class, and other matters at our universities. The treatment of faculty, whether they are tenure track or non-tenure track, horizontal and vertical accountability, staffing and transparency, modes of admission, advancement, and accountability at our universities. Think, if you want a course in professional ethics, you find it at a university. Law, there's law ethics courses. You can find for education, nursing. If you have a medical school, you have medical ethics courses. If you have journalism, you have journalism ethics courses. Every field is covered but two. There's nothing on church ethics. There's nothing about an institution that teaches ethics that needs to have its own professional ethical standards. There's no place that I know that has a course on church ethics or the ethics of a religious institution. But also, there's nothing on university ethics. We teach ethics for every professional discipline but our own. We have never created a context in which we could investigate what those courses would look like, what the syllabi would look like, or any other matter. Um, the question of university ethics is, if you will, beyond ourselves. We don't consider it. We don't think about how we are or not accountable to one another as colleagues, as members of an institution, or as the way we proceed. And so I, I want to put that out there. It's that when I was um, looking at this, I also wanted to look at the matter of social trust. And, and I'm going to say something about social trust in a moment. 
But I'd like to suggest that in, in, in the United States right now, this week, we have three major university presidents, all women, who came under critique and attack. And I dare say that it's because of a lack of familiarity with ethics and also a lack of consideration of how the university is part of the whole question of the eruption, if you will, of distrust in social, the lack of social trust. That the lack of social trust is so palpable. And the past two days, I've been looking in every article in the New York Times about this, and everything is about academic freedom, but not a word about social trust. Not a word about that, nor a word about the ethics of universities, just about academic freedom. So there's a certain thing here that the people who actually engage in speculation, principle building, and constructing, and helps all other disciplines, doesn't have the resources to address its own competencies in addressing these issues. So now I'm interested in talking about social trust as being needed to be engaged uh, much more directly. I found, as I was beginning to get involved in this two years ago, that Angela Merkel, in leaving her remarkable legacy of 16 years as chancellor of Germany, declared the most important capital for politics is trust. Merkel's brief text began in this way. Standing before you here today, literally as she's stepping down, I feel two things above all, gratitude and humility. Humility towards the office that I had the honor of holding for so long, and gratitude for the trust that was placed in me. Trust. Of this I was always keenly aware is the most important capital in politics. It should never be taken for granted. Then she went on, our democracy thrives on both our ability to engage in critical debate and to self-correct. It thrives on the constant balancing of interest and on mutual respect. It thrives on solidarity and trust, including trust in facts. And it thrives on the fact that protests must arise wherever scientific findings are denied and conspiracy theories and hate speech are spread. Let me change that quote by removing the word democracy and read it again about a university. Our university thrives on our ability to engage in critical debate and to self-correct. It thrives on the balance, constant balancing of interest and mutual respect. It thrives on solidarity and trust, including trust in facts. And it thrives on the fact that protests must arise wherever scientific findings are denied and conspiracy theories and hate speech are spread. Similar insights as Merkel's were raised elsewhere about trust. Francis Fukuyama, who wrote the best-selling book, Trust, the Social Virtues and the Creation of Prosperity, was invited by The Atlantic to address the cap a country's capability to resist the coronavirus. He was invited to do this three years ago. And he emphatically declared, trust is the single most important commodity that will determine the fate of a society. Kenneth Arrow noted 50 years ago, virtually every commercial transaction has within itself an element of trust. Certainly any transaction conducted over a period of time. Trust, he said, is transactional. More recently, in their report on trust, Esteban Ortiz Ospina and Max Rosa write, trust is a fundamental element of social capital, a key contributor to sustaining well-being outcomes. In short, 
Trust is the fundamental resource that provides the stability, the development, and the sustainability of any institution. Without it, the institution does not function. With it, it can thrive. In the United States, as I said, I think that one of the main issues that happened this past week with these three otherwise fine presidents was that the scrutiny that they underwent was something which was never spoken. It was about whether or not there was trust in them and their institutions. And let me try to say why I think that's the case. And here I just want to give you three key elements about social trust that we have from data. And the first is that in their studies, Ortiz, Ospina, and Rosa report that economic inequality is negatively related to trust. In short, those who are poorer trust less. Those who are poor trust less. It may seem evident, but it's something that needs to be written and uh, addressed. Second, and this is social trust. This is not personal or interpersonal trust. This is social trust, trust in social institutions. They also note that in all countries, those individuals with tertiary education were by far the group most likely to report socially trusting. And almost in every country, those with post-secondary, non-tertiary education were more likely to trust others than those only with primary and lower secondary education. Education is critical for trust. This point requires comment, however, lest it mislead us into thinking that millions of high school graduates are less capable of trust and trustworthiness than those with university degrees. In, in my country, where private tertiary education is so cost prohibitive, and access to solid public tertiary education depends very much upon the state in which you live, the lack of access to education pivots the entire matter of social trust in terms of class barriers. Indeed, in the United States, more skills-oriented forms of education at our community colleges are in precarity. 45% of all undergraduates in the United States are presently at community colleges. And, and yet, they're not investigated or studied at all by historians of education in universities because those professors do not deem that schools of uh, community colleges are tertiary forms of education. That's a catch-22. Evidence shows us, oh, pardon me, indeed, in the United States, more skills-oriented forms of education at our community colleges are in precarity. Therein, higher education further alienates our working class. Evidence shows us in the United States that access to a major university, this is a direct quote, diminishes year by year for lower income and working class people. This is going on for the past 15 years. Our elite campuses remain privileged and that American higher education is simply a powerful force for reinforcing that advantage. These barriers to equal opportunity impact greatly the matter of social trust. Finally, the third point, trust is based on a mutual vulnerability and mutual recognition. As Kevin Vallier and Michael Weber note on the first page of their volume entitled Social Trust, most scholars see trust as a product of durable mutual expectations about cooperative moral behavior. 
But that social trust doesn't function if you've already alienated enormous populations within your own nation's uh, confines. I want to just conclude, as I move to conclusion, a point on vulnerability, because I think that human vulnerability is essential for restoring social trust. And it's a way that I, I, I think, in coming here, this is our first time of presenting what we're trying to do publicly. And by doing this, I think I'd like to say to the groups, I hope that vulnerability is expressed by each of the members of the working group. So Jonathan and Linda, this is for you. <laughs> Over the past four years, I began interrogating the effectiveness of my own teaching style. It seemed to me that in my ethics courses, I was teaching people how to think ethically. But while the students may have learned the material well, I wasn't sure that they would, in the end, actually act ethically. I was teaching material so that they could conscientiously act. But invariably, I found that some students were subsequently responsive to another's need for moral assistance, but others were not. If all take the same courses on ethics, why is it that afterwards some respond to the need for moral assistance and others do not? Is my university course sufficient? To make a long story short, I began to study how matters of vulnerability and recognition help in matters of moral agency, and began to pursue a style that would elicit another's vulnerability so as to recognize the need for moral responsiveness. That is, I began to pursue a vulnerable style that would awaken in my students their own vulnerability, and in that way, they might better recognize the need for moral responsiveness. This vulnerable style, I believe, has good effect in promoting social trust. In exploring vulnerability, I rely mostly on Judith Butler's claims that vulnerability is not to be confused with precarity or instability or weakness, but rather vulnerability is a capacity to be open to the other and to recognize and to respond to the other. Her work has helped me and my doctoral students to engage the conditions of possibility to encounter those not yet vulnerably disposed to recognize and respond to others. This capacious vulnerability very much functions on a two-way street. I can only awaken another's vulnerability by myself being vulnerable. If I want to engage my students, not only in their thinking, but also in that level of openness that leaves them receptive to the other, then I need to be disclosive. I need to model that vulnerability to them. This, I think, captures the transactional insight that we saw in social trust. And therefore, I hope, in a way, that the members of the working group are vulnerable to the claims of one another. And on that, let me conclude. I believe that, Angela, like Angela Merkel, our universities need to more directly engage the topic of social trust. We also need to recognize that social trust in the academy, as well in other political and social institutions, has suffered considerably. Additionally, we have only begun to see that the social trust each of us have in our institutions depends very much on the social location of each of us. Finally, we need to recognize how dependent we are in our universities on social trust. 
It is in facing that social trust that I hope our working groups not only address the matter of their own two topics, but that in that vulnerable way they address these matters, they become participative catalysts in the work of rebuilding and restoring social trust. Thank you. Thank you uh, for the invitation to be here. Thank you, Jim, for that great talk. And thank you, Eve, for, for hosting us in this beautiful space. Uh, my name is Jonathan Lawrence, uh, and I'm speaking on the one hand as a director of the Klaus Center for the Study of Constitutional Democracy at Boston College, uh, where I'm a political science professor, but also as the chair of a new uh, inter-university working group on democracy, education, and governance. Now, the purpose of this group is to encourage us to think globally about the future of democracy worldwide and of the university's role in preserving it. So we are investigating this at a time when democracy and the rule of law are threatened on several fronts. So before getting into the details of our working group, let me begin by presenting a snapshot of the state of democracy, and this is open to debate, and I welcome the debate uh, that might follow. Uh, we're in a paradoxical situation where on the one hand, democracies have successfully expanded, uh, in, in formally speaking, in several waves um, in the course of the 19th and, and, and 20th centuries, and of course we've, we've met something of a wall in, in this century. But 2024 will be the biggest election year on record since the advent of universal suffrage. There will be elections in 76 countries, which is home to more than half of the world's population. And that includes eight of the 10 most populous nations on Earth. Yet, of course, the meaning of democracy in these different contexts varies greatly. There is of course, a widespread lack of adhesion to many of the democratic principles and practices within many of these same democracies. So in reality, voting will only be free and fair in around 43 of the 76. And that includes the 27 EU countries who will have uh, EU polls. And in reality, because of demographic trends, Today, 70% of the world's population live in autocracies, a number which was less than half uh, just over 10 years ago. So in a world of stalled democracies and assertive autocracies, it's sobering to consider the future of our system of government. The Open Society Foundation did a global survey earlier this year and found that I think it was 86% of people believed in democracy's potential to deliver results, but they are far less convinced by its actual performance. And we see that reflected in the institutional and social distrust that Tim was just talking about, but also in electoral apathy, uh, and of course in political polarization. So this paradoxical situation we are in is one where democracies we know perform better than the alternatives in many areas with regard to GDP, economic growth, human health and security, and in recent generations also with regard to the experience of women and minorities. 
And yet, we are, of course, familiar with its recent shortcomings as well. And confidence in public institutions and the news media have accordingly eroded. And when my uh, Constitutional Studies Center was created in 2008, constitutional crises seemed seemingly were reserved for countries outside of the transatlantic space. But as voters across Europe have since demonstrated, and this most re recently, of course, in, in the Netherlands, but uh, we can think of a number of countries, uh, as the last several years of US politics can also attest, we are not experiencing merely theoretical vulnerabilities in our democratic constitutional orders. Recent developments have exposed the inability of political parties to manage the conflicts that have been brewing for decades. And we know that there are proximate reasons, such as the financial crisis of 2008 or the refugee crisis that began in 2015. But we also know there are longer term uh, uh, causes having to do with the way our economic systems are organized. So these developments also expose the need for more informed debate and deliberation among an adequately prepared democratic citizenry more than ever. And, and that needs to come from civil society, from below, which is where we fit in with our international collaboration. So what are the guiding questions for our working group? And again, this is quite new, and so I invite you to um, offer your own um, as, as you are so inspired. How should scholars who study democracy and governance consider the role of civic and moral education in their work, and vice versa? In what ways should scholars of the humanities, social sciences, and law who study the threats to democracy and governance consider the role of education? How do we train and teach our students and larger communities to engage in the protection of democracy and in the promotion of civil discourse. Now, I am quite lucky that Jim Heenan has assembled an illustrious group to consider these important questions. And in truth, we have been convened by a connector who has a singularly global profile. And the nine of us, including my new uh, colleague, Linda Hogan, come from a range of disciplinary backgrounds, um, formative education, political science, theology, literature, communication, journalism. So we have begun to explore how collaboration across fields and disciplines can help work towards solutions. Now, what is the model of the working group? Well, we're one of two uh, interdisciplinary faculty working groups being convened by the new program on global ethics and social trust. The other is on climate migration uh, climate change and migration, chaired by um, a, a law professor named Katie Young. And so in addition to the monthly meetings that we have during the fall and spring, we will also hold two international conferences in uh, the summers of 2024 and 2025. And we've only just begun. We've just had the first several working group sessions, and we're still working out what will be the most productive forms of output and tangible outcomes. And there, too, I welcome your suggestions. For now, this is a collaborative conversation taking place intercontinentally, exploring some of the underlying questions relating to democracy's resilience and survival. What is the nature of the crisis of democracy? Why are young people around the world losing faith in it? 
How can societies address the hard truths undermining democracy while also sustaining inclusive forms of dialogue? What are the most impactful forms of civic education inside and outside the classroom? So the interdisciplinary responses that are beginning to be elicited by this exchange are where I think its strength will lie. In one session, we discussed the rise of authoritarian attitudes among young people and considered the role of the university in intersecting this growing affinity. Democratic stability, of course, fundamentally relies upon the legitimacy of its institutions, but certain political attitudes are trending in a worrisome direction. A declining share of American, US American respondents, for example, believe that it's actually essential to live in a democracy. So whereas 71% of those born in the 1930s were responding affirmatively to the essential quality of living in democracy, that percentage shrinks to 44% for those born in the 1970s. It shrinks down to 29% for those born in the 1980s. And there are other countries, of course, where support for authoritarian or military rule has increased, including in a host of European democracies from Romania, Sweden, Poland, the UK, Netherlands, Germany, Hungary, France, the list goes on. And indeed, the OSF, the Open Society Foundation study from earlier this year, found that authoritarianism increasingly appeals to the young, and that only 57% in their global sample from 30 different countries, only 57% of 18 to 35-year-olds thought democracy was preferable to other forms of government. And that is compared to 71% of older respondents. So we can see a clear generation trend. A recent Georgetown study whose uh, cover you can see there, um, which we discussed in our group, found that higher education is indeed a bulwark against the threat of authoritarianism, as, as Jim was suggesting it is for social trust as well. Um, but it, and, it, and the study noted that each element that is intrinsic to the university formation, inquiry, the common good contributes to that solidity. But we know about the gap between those who have had the privilege of attending tertiary education and those who have not. And so as one working group member put it, we need an education system that is capable of understanding why a country little by little ends up in an autocratic system, and especially an education for well-informed discernment. And that is one of the uh, members of our group who, whose country has experienced uh, autocratic slime. Uh, in another session, we discussed uh, the risk uh, presented by online disinformation and propaganda, and how our campuses might contribute to improving the quality of public debate. And as one member summarized our charge with regard to equipping citizens to defend themselves against manipulation, what do institutions of higher learning owe people who don't go to college with respect to shoring up the basic values of our democratic republic? So what can we realistically aim to achieve? Well, we know what our shared goals are, which is to form ethical students, to form ethical future leaders, to enable students to question themselves, to question the systems they find themselves in. But we also want to find ways to extend our reach to equip the citizens around us to conduct their own discussions by 
fostering civil discourse and debate on campus, modeling it, if you like, for the surrounding community, by promoting digital literacy, by teaching methods of moral and political discernment, by providing digested news and information, and by expanding and maintaining an open channel of communication across universities that are operating in different democratic contexts, such as those where working group members are themselves engaged scholars and citizens. So we are still in the early stages. We have not uh, determined the precise format of what our legacy will be, but I welcome this audience's feedback and input about the university's role in preserving our democracies. What do you think is most important and realistically achievable? And for now, we are a building block towards a more permanent forum for dialogue and exchange across boundaries, borders, and disciplines. So like democracy itself, we may become a model for process more than a guarantee of specific outcomes. But I'd like to think that we are still better off for that. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. So thank you, uh, Jonathan, and thank you, Jim. I need to be able to see and be seen, so hence the, um, uh, the um, alternate um, podium. So, of course, universities have existed long before the emergence of democratic forms of government. Through history, they played a role in preserving the elite power of the ruling classes and advancing the reach of empire. Indeed, we know a lot more about Trinity's role in the British Empire through the excellent recent work of Kieran O'Neill and Jane Allmire in this regard. But universities were also places, though not the primary places, where the revolutionary ideals of equal dignity and the accompanying forms of political organization were developed. Now, we know that over the centuries, universities really positioned themselves as formative institutions of modernity, advancing knowledge on the one hand, aiming to embody the highest ideals of the humanist tradition, uh, which included championing the values of liberal democracy and supporting the institutions that sustain them. Although, as Jim has highlighted very clearly, the university's position in this regard is very ambivalent indeed as an institution. But today, humanity stands at a threshold, facing a host of interrelated transnational and global challenges that, if not addressed, threaten to destroy our planet and bequeath to future generations a world of turbulence, conflict, and endemic inequality. As I've um, noted um, actually in this forum before, the challenges are ecological, technological, socioeconomic, and political. And this is the primary focus of our discussion today, the political. And although each on its own represents a profound challenge for democratic values, together they represent an existential threat to the flourishing of individuals, and to the well-being of communities and the survival of the planet. Some of the challenges, like climate change and artificial intelligence, pose radically new questions about the place of humans in the world and the scale of our responsibilities in and for our planet. 
Others, like the crisis of global inequality, exclusionary populism, the crisis of democracy, and the culture wars, are in part, maybe in large part, an outcome of the blind spots of liberalism. And they expose the limitations and the failures of the politics of liberal democracy over many decades, indeed one might say over many centuries. And indeed, as our historians and anthropologists and cultural theorists have shown, the ideals of liberty and equality, which were intended to address the defects of pre-modern societies, visited their own forms of violence on women, on any person who did not have white skin, and on the peoples in lands colonized by European settlers, even as they advanced concepts of democracy. Moreover, as Akhil Belgrami notes, these ideals have been figured in such a way as to create a fundamental alienation in modernity, an alienation from each other and also from the natural world. So I see this as the context in which our project is working. And so as an ethicist, I come to this project in the first instance to try to understand more fully the nature of this environment. Because I believe that there is no way to restore or renew faith in democracy without acknowledging and addressing the systemic failures of our current politics. And one of the tasks of the ethicist is to interrogate the values that frame this politics and to illuminate how they shape our practice. And I spoke, as I mentioned, about this a number of months ago here as part of the Long Room Club Research Festival, so I won't rehearse it again. Um, but then I spoke about how we must address the hyper-individualism, the global inequality, and the anthropocentrism that's driving our politics. And, but I also want to note here that this is an inherently interdisciplinary task because ethicists need historians, specialists in culture, literature, and languages, as well as social and political scientists in order to probe and to understand these dynamics in, in some way. And so while this task of understanding these dynamics is a vital first step, and of course it's always an ongoing one, I also would like to see our future work as also being focused on asking what a redeemed politics might look like. And from this, to give an account of what education, especially our different disciplines, can bring to the task of building a redeemed politics. So from the perspective of ethics, I think I'm concerned with articulating or constructing a framework for a political ethic. First of all, that can address the systemic inequalities and the interrelated ecological breakdown that's a consequence of a tenacious political economy, much of it the outworkings of the persistent legacy of empire. It needs to be an ethic that can build a public realm grounded in shared intelligibility. But I really wonder, is that possible today? I think that's a question we really do need to probe. And also a context that can distinguish between commitments that aim to build up and those that seek to tear down the democratic commons. And I think that can create spaces for those many voices that remain silent and silenced, 
but also that can safeguard, as Danielle Allen says, the democratic energies that have been unleashed by new media. And also, to use the words of Jonathan Rawson, an ethic that can help us understand what we want government of the people, for the people, and by the people to mean in a world where democratic processes are often used to consolidate plutocratic power. All of which, in a way, is integral to a political ethic that can propel a politics of human flourishing and planetary well-being. Now, each of these is an ethical challenge that has particular manifestations at local, national, and global levels. And so our conversations are inevitably uh, um, intercontinental uh, as well as interdisciplinary. And so I think, as I think about our ethics education, I think it must aim at equipping students and indeed equipping ourselves, to Jim's point, to develop a moral language and an ethical analysis that can reckon with this complexity so that then we can begin to sketch what we think should comprise the elements of a renewed political ethic. But as we strive to do this, I think we've got to acknowledge that universities are themselves implicated in the deformations, the inequalities, the privilege, the elitism of modernity, but are also, I think as Jonathan mentioned, part of the ideological contestations that are sweeping the globe currently. In her newly published Tanner lectures entitled Nihilistic Times, Thinking with Max Weber, Wendy Brown explores some of these issues, and she argues for the retrieval of knowledge from hyper-politicization, but without expunging values from research or teaching. I think she is more successful at making the case for expunging, uh, for uh, retrieving knowledge from hyper-politicization than she is uh, in terms of the discussion about values in research and teaching. And in a way, because I think she's agnostic about the truth of moral values, uh, or at least she wants to distance herself from, from that position. But she insists that above all, universities must make good on our commitment to critical thinking by submitting all values to scrutiny. And of course, I agree with Brown that we must submit all of our values to scrutiny and also that developing the skills of critical thinking are fundamental. But I also think that the issue of moral value can and must be raised. And I think that our task as teachers also must include enabling students to understand how to frame and reframe fundamental questions of purpose and value to identify the systemic ex exclusions in our intellectual traditions and therefore to question their legitimacy, as well as to appreciate the value of social trust and of epistemic humility. Questions of meaning and value are inherently connected. And for that reason, I think it's vital that we also explore with our students the distinctive and unique value of universities highlighting that trust in our endeavor has to be earned, grounded as it is in the expertise, the integrity, and the benevolence of science, the kind of classic uh, language. 
And while we often speak with our students about the requirements of expertise and integrity in our research and teaching, I think we often neglect to speak about the benevolence of our purpose, which is to advance knowledge that is consequential for people's future well-being and to pursue it not for personal or professional advancement, but for the benefit of humanity. So in this sense, a global public good or a public good of science and knowledge is a value that has to be protected for sure, but it also has to be earned. And I think in this regard, the language that Jim used to open this about university ethics and the requirements of ethics in our universities, as well as social trust, is vital. But I also think it's possible, necessary even, for teachers to map out what we think our vision might be for redeemed political ethics, and to encourage students to scrutinize, refute, and indeed disagree. And so as I analyze our current predicament, I remain committed to a political ethic rooted in equal dignity and oriented towards a renewed understanding of the common good. Because notwithstanding all of its defects, and there are many, I think that this noble but flawed ideal of each person counting for one and no one counting for more than one must remain a central tenet of our political ethic. It's the basis on which we can still challenge worldviews that render certain persons as non-persons and therefore exclude them from participation in a life in common. It's the necessary starting point of an ethic that challenges inherited privilege and amplifies previously silenced voices. It is, moreover, a language that propels us to recover and sharpen a sense of justice. Of course, we're still left with the question of what forms of political practice can assist in cultivating an expansive sense of equal dignity, particularly amongst those who've lost faith in liberal democracy. And yet, in this regard, I see that there's really much exciting work underway, including that of black critical theorists Fred Moton and Stephen O'Harney, who explore the vital political activism of what they call the undercommons, namely the ethical and political labor that we all need of a public that has lost hope in politics, but that persists in resistance and self-organization. <coughs> There is still so much to be explored about the requirements of human flourishing, about the value of moral pluralism, and the inherent strength, I think, of moral frameworks that can embrace diversity, uh, and a diversity of worldviews in support of that flourishing. But by way of conclusion, I want to return to the role of education and to stress the importance of what I mentioned earlier, which is epistemic humility. And in this context, actually, the words of uh, religious ethics scholar Jennifer Hurt uh, are an important reminder of the frailty of all our endeavors. She writes, remember that Christians built an array of institutions to care for the poor and sick, therefore transforming the face of the ancient world. But they also went on crusades and burned witches. So in our work, she says, all we can do is attend to our common vulnerabilities, engage the transformative power of disruptive empathy, build the best institutions we can, 
and keep watch for their failures and exclusions to emerge into view. So thank you to Jim, Jonathan and Linda there for letting me, first of all, listen to all those fascinating talks. I've been writing all over my notes, forgetting that I was going to talk last, so who knows how this will go. We'll just throw those out the window. Um, and also for allowing me to get across your panel. It's incredible to hear the work you're doing, the very timely work on the Democracy, Governance and Education Working Group. And I think the reason I was scribbling so much down is there's so much overlap with what we've been trying to do here in the Hub and are still trying to do. So hopefully this is a conversation to be continued. Um, so I've been asked to talk today a bit about all the work that's been going on here in the Hub uh, in this democracy space and more recently this education democracy space. So as Eve mentioned, I'm the coordinator of the Democracy Forum in the Hub and we have three core aims. The first is to apply arts and humanities research to these pressing questions we've heard about today. Um, I think there's been agreement from the panel that we cannot answer this as one discipline and definitely the arts and humanities alone cannot do this. So this is to complement the work that social scientists and political economists are already doing, but to add in some perspectives that we sometimes worry have got lost. So things that things like history, English literature, philosophy, classics, culture, uh, religion, ethics, creative arts have to offer everything from emotion and imagination to long-term perspectives. I can go on about this for days and days, so I will leave that bit there. But crucially, we didn't want this to be academics sitting in a room, nodding in agreement that the world is terrible, we're all very clever. So our second aim, alongside this interdisciplinary research, was cross-sector collaboration, including, as Eve mentioned, through a media fellow scheme. And we've been incredibly lucky uh, to have Mark Little, who is an Irish journalist and tech entrepreneur, working as our media fellow on collaborative projects coming into the university. And we're really lucky to have time and space to actually work together in that buzzword we hear so much of co-creation uh, co and actually co-create something. So Eve mentioned the podcast and I am never one to miss the opportunity for a plug. So we created a research project that became a podcast called The History of the Future. The idea of this uh, first series across six episodes, we look at how you deal with a future that is very uncertain. We talk to arts and humanities scholars, putting our money where our mouth is, and media innovators working on the front line about some of the topics we've heard today. So for example, when truth and trust kept coming up, that is one of the episodes, as well as how do you have spaces for civic, civil discourse. Um, so please do have a listen if you haven't already. Uh, and then the final aim, and this is what I want to focus on today, is about engaging new audiences. So how do we not only reach the audiences university are good at getting to uh, through our public humanities initiatives, but also get to those people that we've heard a bit about that have been excluded, have been left out, and for the hub, a new venture into a younger audience. So we're, through this project called the Critical Change Lab, targeting 11 to 18 year olds. So now for just a slight change of branding and a, a change of topic. The, what I want to focus on today then is this third aim, which is public engagement, specifically through the Critical Change Lab project. So, as Eve mentioned, uh, this project is undertaken in collaboration between the Hub and colleagues in the School of Education. We are part of a consortium of 10 practice and research partners, which I would recommend to everyone. It's incredible bringing uh, practice partners in with researchers. You question everything you thought was right and realise they are much better at things like icebreakers and facilitation and change the way you think through making and doing as well. Uh, from across Europe, and we're led by the University of Oli. The project is funded by the Horizon Europe programme. We started back in April last year and it will run all the way to March 2026. 
So in terms of why we're doing this, I mean, really, I don't need to spend too long dwelling on that, because what we've heard today is that democracy has a troubling trajectory. Uh, Jonathan outlined that so incredibly. We heard about this paradoxical situation. And the fact that while at the same time as having these youth movements and climate and this kind of engagement, we also have a, a disillusionment with democracy, a turn to authoritarianism in some ways. So the troubling trajectory is a good way of capturing it. So for this project, the starting point then is that if democracy, as we've heard, is a process, we need to have spaces for co-creation if it's going to thrive, including meaningful youth participation. So what our questions are to start with then is how do we develop learning spaces to collaborate and engage in dialogue and critical reflection? And what are the core competencies and literacies needed for active citizenship to, to make sure that people are, as we've heard, adequately prepared to engage in all different ways in democracy? So the Critical Change Lab project takes democracy in its broadest sense. It's about beyond the ballot box, the everyday democracy. And what we're trying to do is open up spaces for young people to develop shared imaginaries about democracy, to foster transformative agency and encourage youth ownership of everyday democracy, develop skills and competencies for participation in democratic systems and cultures, to create a scalable model of democratic pedagogy, to strengthen democratic processes in formal and informal education, and as always with European projects, generate recommendations for policy and practice. So, you know, it's an easy task list that I think um, we're doing pretty well so far, but to deliver on these goals, we do actually have a strategy. The first is the critical change labs themselves. So what we are doing is taking an existing methodology that's been used in the past in workplaces, for example, in post offices, uh, and we're now applying it in formal and non-formal, so things like youth groups, museums, libraries, uh, learning environments. We are working with 11 to 18 year olds in 19 European countries, including Ireland, over the next three years. And in terms of scale, again, just to look at the numbers, there's 80 learning environments, 1,500 young people, 400 educators, and more than 20 civic society organizations. And this final output will be a flexible model, the idea being that anyone could take it, any teacher, any youth group organizer, apply it to different tasks in different situations, along with training tools and recommendations. So the key features of the, our approach is that it's youth-led, so participants explore issues that are relevant to them, and sometimes that is then scaled up. An issue in their everyday life then gets put onto a more systemic level. It's participatory and involves collaboration with local actors, so educators, civic society organisations, artists, scientists, and it's oriented towards change. So it's about equipping participants with the critical literary skills and the tools needed to make meaningful actions in ways that impact their everyday life. So these labs have six phases. We start with onboarding, which is introducing young people to the model, the context, the processes, a few icebreakers. We then move on to the questioning and analyzing, to bring them through to envisaging and acting, and finally reflecting. So part of this process of this uh, participatory action research is to have evaluation embedded throughout, but we do have a final phase allowing them to review the process itself. And crucially, the lab doesn't just run once and we're done, we, we did it. Because it is a participatory action research, we will be running it three times with different groups and the model will be adapted as necessary, taking on board the feedback and evolve as, as the journey goes on. The methods are flexible, a bit like the model. So we are looking at everything from democracy education to things from the STEAM projects that we've had here in Trinity, creative arts approaches, all geared towards transformative, expansive learning. 
We're using active pedagogies, including transmedia storytelling, role play, drama, theatre, creative technologies, um, so things like VR and AR as well. And all of this is supported by the critical literacies framework, um, and Trinity's actually leading on the development of this. So critical literacies is a bit of a buzzword right now. Um, so what we did was we started with a review of all the existing frameworks that, that we could find um, to identify the key features of what were in these frameworks, but also what we felt were missing, what needed updating, what needed changing, what needed modifying. We also were drawing together quite a number of subspecialities. Um, so when you start to search, search for critical literacies, you find yourself in critical media literacy, futures literacy, relational literacies, even critical health literacy. So take, looking what was in, in those literacies frameworks as well, to draw them into one overarching critical literacy framework that we felt we could stand by. This is still a work in progress, by the way, we're still waiting for feedback from some of our partners. But what we found is that we had to create two frameworks, one being this overview framework, the idea being you could apply it in any context. So uh, one of my colleagues from the School of Education is already using it with her, um, her students who are in the teach training program, but also can be used to support specifically these critical change labs. And what you see is a, a learner journey that is uh, not linear uh, and is, is in line with this expansive learning process, but starts with a base level of understanding of the topic. If it was for this context specifically, things like what is democracy, what, is a, what are critical literacies, going through to identifying contradictions and tensions. Again, for this change lab, it would be within democratic systems more specifically. And then moving into this phase of deconstructing, which echoes a lot of what Linda was saying in terms of getting our participants to challenge assumptions and accepted norms, everything from timelines to uh, kind of us-them binaries, uh, engaging with diverse voices and interrogating power dynamics. And then the final stage uh, that we move into is to do with imagining alternatives and acting. And I think the key thing here is that this action doesn't have to be changing something huge. It can be small and meaningful in a young person's everyday life. And the tools themselves to do this can be quite quite diverse, so uh, it doesn't have to be a political intervention, it can be something that's quite creative. Um, and we've already done in Trinity a, a pre-programme pilot. This was part of the European Researchers' Night this year and Beta, which was a new festival of art and technology in Dublin, um, held at the Digital Hub in Dublin 8. We involved collaboration with the Digital Hub as well, and a digital artist and educator. We worked with 13 young people in a six-week programme that was concentrated on futures thinkings that used these stages and trialled them. Uh, and some of the activities, for example, were about looking at the future through the lens of the past or from multiple perspectives. The output, though, which I think explains that kind of the broadness of what could come out of this activating change, was a VR gallery space that looked at issues like ecology and technology. And what was great working with these young people is that was exhibited as part of the festival alongside very high-profile artists over in the Dublin 8, and you know, things like local uh, uh, government were involved in looking around it. So there was that real sense of their voice being heard, or that was the feedback we got, not to speak for those young people. Um, the first critical change lab itself is taking place in the new year with a youth group in Kildare, and then there'll be two more iterations of it before the project is over. So the other side of this project involves research in, I guess, what might, we might see as a more traditional sense with teachers and young people. Firstly, through a democracy health questionnaire, we are currently in the middle of doing a survey of 2,000 formal and non-formal institutions in Europe, including 200 in Ireland, to assess democracy culture in the learning environment. From this, we're creating a democracy health index, 
And more important than that health index itself, though, is the questionnaire is intended in the long term to be um, a tool for self-assessment for the institutions um, and to encourage institutions as they're going through this process to look at where the opportunities are to promote more dem democratic values within their education space. Um, and if anyone is involved with non-formal youth groups or has contacts in secondary schools in Ireland, we are still looking for respondents. And anyone that's been involved in doing surveys knows how hard it can be to reach those numbers, so please let me know. We're also undertaking 10 case studies with young people uh, growing up in challenging contexts for the development and practice of everyday democracy. We'll be working specifically with a group of young people in a rural setting who are a part of a programme to divert them from crime. Uh, but there will be focus groups, a semi-structured interview with other stakeholders, and ethnographic accounts to all create a better understanding to compare youth perspectives of everyday democracy and a better understanding of their lived experience, the ideas of identity and belonging, understanding of democracy and participation, and future perspectives. So we have, I think, fairly big aspirations, uh, but a good consortium and ethos. And I'm looking forward to the next stage, but I think it's a great moment to pause and talk about it, particularly hearing the work that is going on between Boston College, uh, Trinity, and other collaborators, because I think there's a lot to be, we could learn from, from continuing that conversation. So thank you.